Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 19 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode, number 19, is about value engineering and whole life costs, what the relationship is between the two, and how you can successfully offer value engineering options without putting yourself at risk. So let's start with some simple definitions. Whole life costing is a way of appraising an asset, a building, a material, and sometimes clusters of all of those things to determine what the cost of having that asset is over the whole lifespan. So if you consider it in the form of a building, we're talking of the capital costs, the cost to design, the procurement costs, the cost of building or installation, then the operational or running costs, maintenance and upgrades, including some provisions for those less foreseen maintenance costs, costs of downtime, and then ultimately the disposal cost. And for a building that might be in a number of different ways, so you might actually sell a building, at which point it will cost some money to dispose of it, but you might actually be due a financial windfall then. But more commonly what we're talking about is say a public building, let's go with a school, it has a design life of say 50 years and when you've got to the end of that you've essentially got to demolish it, build a new one and start again. And that would be your end-to-end definition of whole life cost. And then how does value engineering fit into that? One rather cynical person I remember speaking to had a really dim view of value engineering altogether and was suggesting that all it is was ripping out anything of any value from a project and substituting it with cheap shitty alternatives that don't last as long, don't perform as well, but contractors and subcontractors make money by putting them forward and pocketing some of the savings. But that's not really what it's all about. So the term itself actually started its life in the Second World War when because of material shortages there was a necessity to source replacement materials for the manufacturing process which essentially performed the same function obviously from an alternative source to keep production going. Over time this developed into something slightly different, more of a means to solve problems and identify ways to eliminate and reduce unwanted costs. Now if you're really bored and you want to look into that further, there is a society of American value engineers who devised a standard methodology for value engineering in a process that takes some 40 hours where a team of stakeholders and some facilitators will sit and review the brief, analyse the proposed functions of a project or a building, looking at which ones are going to cost the most money, which ones are going to add the most value, identify bits which aren't adding any value and pair those sections out so that what you're left with is a really functionally optimised building and the idea is that this is done right at the start and what that should mean is then when you're at sort of inception phase of a project long before a main contractor and a subcontractor have even got involved in the scheme this value engineering exercise should be happening to strip back and optimize what the client is getting for their budget and that definition really does put the engineering aspect of the phrase into action because it isn't just a case of substituting this for that to save a few quid here and there it's a process of getting the most cost effective option to deliver the most function so maybe in part my cynical friend is right because how value engineering is now deployed in a construction project certainly from my experience has been all to do with cost reduction with far less of a scientific approach and sometimes less consideration 
for what it means for the overall life cost. And given the association with the disastrous events at Grenfell Tower, now some six plus years ago, certain cost-cutting activities have been badged as value engineering when they really are not, they're just buying cheaper. Because there is always a cheaper floor tile, a cheaper ceiling product, a cheaper paint. But the all-important thing to consider here is, is what's being put forward the same spec? Does it meet the same requirements? Does it perform in the same way? Or maybe it isn't like for like, maybe it performs less. But in exchange for that lesser performance and there's a saving involved, is the client willing to accept a lesser spec, a lesser performance in return for paying a bit less? And you do get these situations, particularly on negotiated contracts, where the client will actively say to the contractor, I'm struggling for budget here, help me cut some of the costs. And the contractor will inevitably come back to you, his supply chain, for ideas. And ideas can come from all over the place. Sometimes the savings are less obvious than others. It's not always just about swapping out a ceiling tile for a different product, but sometimes the best savings can be quite radical, such as a wholesale change of the external wall construction. I've known of proposing things like cassette-based SFS in lieu of blockwork walls, and the same for roof construction, so that it could be all built up on site use using a crane in a couple of days and that drastically reducing the on-site construction time also taking the external walls off the critical path beyond a couple of days of crane time meaning the build was quite heavily accelerated we we're also actually able to offer increased energy performance and better air tightness but it was a little bit more expensive to start with so the savings from that mostly came from prelim now obviously the more radical the changes that you're offering the more careful you've got to be because it's all too easy to start offering something which you think is a better option and a better solution but not pick up on some of the subtle details that have to change as a result and this is where some of the issues come about because you're not necessarily thinking of all of the product criteria at the point of offering a change. Sometimes the decisions to put particular products forward that come from the architect are based on things that you wouldn't have looked at before and the knock-on effects for changing can then be quite significant. So when you're looking at insulation all right maybe you can get the same u-value from a different product but then is the thickness of that insulation the same? Is its compressive strength the same? How do do the acoustic and fire properties compare? If the thickness is different, then what's the knock-on effect to other work? Maybe you shouldn't actually have to know. Maybe all of your job is to propose some other products, other solutions, and let somebody else decide on what's best for the situation that they want them for. And I'm flagging this up because I don't want you to come unstuck on this. So in a little bit, we'll also talk about some must-dos that you need to do to cover your bases when you're submitting value engineering options. And the question in part comes down to what is the value that somebody's trying to get out of the product? So we need to come back to the definition of value engineering. And what we're trying to get to is maximum function for minimal cost. So if you work that out into a formula, the product value could be looked at in terms of the ratio between its function and its cost. So obviously this is really straightforward when you've got two products that are pretty much the same. They do the same thing. They've got the same expected lifespan, the same performance spec. If one of them costs less than the other, it's got an advantage and the product value is higher purely because the function is the same, but the cost is less. So in that ratio, you put the function at the top, you divide it by the cost, and it gives you a mathematical way of achieving a comparison. Now with that example, it's patently obvious, but let's say we're addressing different acoustic products and one of them performs less than the other. Let's say we started with the architect's spec and we ranked that at 100 out of 100, but it has a cost of 50 quid. 
Dividing the function by the cost gives you a value of 2. The alternative product performs at 90% of the original product's capacity, but the price of that one is 40 quid. So let's put 90 at the top to represent the function and divide that by the 40 quid and you actually get 2.25. So pound for pound for what it delivers, it's actually a more valuable product. And then you need to start asking the question of, is that reduction in performance acceptable? You might consider this over a number of different factors. So you've got this acoustic performance. You might also look at the lifespan of that product as well and rerun the calculation to show how long your original product was designed to last and comparing that with your new product. But in this scenario, your original product has a lifespan of 20 years and your new product has a lifespan of 15 years. Rerunning the same calculation, so we're giving the 20 years a score of 100 and the 15-year product being 75% of the original lifespan obviously has a score of 75. The original product, because its score hasn't changed, it's 100 over 50, which gives it a score of 2. The new product, we've given a score of 75, which sits at the top, and then the price is 40, which sits at the bottom. So that then gets a score of 1.875. So you can see how this simple calculation gives you a means for assessing and then making an informed decision about what's a better product or a worse product. And always given that there are different factors that you might want to consider and different people's priorities will put those factors in a different order. In this scenario, we're choosing whether we want to accept a better performing product, but that we might have to replace sooner. And by putting that calculation together, we've put some science behind those decision points so that your contractor can put that forward to their client and make an informed choice. Now the contractor is able to put those across to the client and let them make their informed decision. Do they want a more effective product for less money? Do they want the longer lasting product and they're happy to pay whatever premium is attached to that? And now typically what will happen is the client will make their informed decision and rather than going purely with the option of the better performing product for less money, what they've now decided is they've got £20,000 to spend on this and by using that product, they can increase the area that they were going to treat and effectively get more acoustic absorption than they thought for their £20,000. So rather than taking a saving, they're reinvesting the saving that they could have made into more product. A similar situation to that did happen to me on a project and it was a bit of a curveball because we were expecting either a bit of a saving to be offered and taken and the client to be happy with that or them to assist on the longer lasting product and enjoy the benefit of either less maintenance or reduced cost over time. And it just goes to show you never can tell what somebody else is going to want. And if you can, your talents are probably best employed somewhere else and not in the construction industry. Competitive poker games is probably something you should explore. More often than not, I've seen clients interested in the lifespan of a product. And that comes back to the whole life cycle costing bit that I mentioned earlier. If you're making a decision to install something that either doesn't last as long or it requires more maintenance over its lifespan, the cost that you're talking about in terms of construction is only a very small slice of the whole picture. And in fact, there are so many factors considered as part of the whole life cost of a product. I won't go into the whole life cost of a building because that does get very complex and I don't really think it's necessary for us to talk about when we're talking value engineering. But let's look at our acoustic treatment 
So the product that we've ended up installing lasts five years less than the product that was specified. Let's say they were similar on maintenance costs, as in not much to do really. You've got a few questions to answer. Is the product going to be available? And is it going to be available in the same colors, the same sizes, and the same appearance? Those are little risk factors which we can't really do anything about or predict. But if you know that something is coming to the end of its production, that's when that starts becoming a factor. But think about downtime of the facility when any replacement work is being carried out. All the ancillary costs of removal, disposal, making good, if things aren't quite the same and you have to redecorate afterwards, all of the costs of accessing the area, the costs of somebody coming out to assess, perhaps put a specification together, plus the cost of buying the replacement product and the time obviously of somebody to install it. So all of that cost is going to come around five years sooner than the longer lasting product. So if you think about it over a longer term, say 60 years, you've had to replace the original product which had a 20 year lifespan three times times whereas the alternative product with the 15 year lifespan you've had to replace that a fourth time within the same period so if you equate all of those costs over a 60 year period the more expensive product because of its lifespan is significantly cheaper Obviously the risks involved make it not quite an exact science. And then if you think about the likes of inflation costs, changes in regulations, so you might need to provide for better safety systems in the future that aren't known about now. There are some things about estimating future costs which are just a complete unknown. Then there's another curveball to consider of if you're assessing a building or a product within it with a view to how much will it cost me to run for the next 50 years. With a lot of organisations focused on say a three to a five year plan who's to say whether that building is even going to be needed in 50 years let alone you've gone through the cost of replacing the acoustic treatments three times and all the other maintenance required so barring some obvious annual costs for particularly heavy maintenance requirements and things like that some clients just take a view that performance and aesthetics are the biggest consideration and again we're back to our crystal ball as to what somebody else's decision is going to be now let's talk about some practicalities of actually quoting for value engineering as a subcontractor. Now in episode 15 I spoke about tendering and quoting and a lot of those same specifics apply to value engineering. So that episode would be worth a listen. It is often done at the start whilst you're quoting for some work and the contractor is exploring options to either reduce their cost or the amount of waste or time it's taking. Sometimes it's about achieving that extra point towards a BRIAM assessment. Anyway, for whatever reason, you're being asked. The favourite when I was working as a contractor was always extra over for this, that and the other. And it wasn't actually until speaking to a supplier of mine that I realised how much work I was asking them to do on occasion to put together all of these option quotes. Because I might just see it as, oh, you knock all of those materials out and then you add these materials in. But then that's oversimplifying things. And so I have to echo the word of warning that I was given in that when you're changing manufacturers, their installation methods and recommendations are different. Some of the things you might want to think about are numbers of fixings penetrations, interface details with other materials, requirements for different primers or additives, differing preparation required to the substrate that you're going to apply to, laying or application conditions, curing times, power supplies or water consumption. Is it heavier and require different plant or more labour to lift? Obviously I can't list out everything in the world. Hopefully you're getting a flavour for what might change 
basically anything. And then it comes back to, you've got to get the data sheets out. You've got to get the manufacturer's installation instructions out and satisfy yourself that you're pricing in the right amount of labor, the right amount of plant fixings and other equipment to go along with the spec change. The next thing you need to do is make sure that your contractor is fully aware of all of the details of your revised product. There are sometimes multiple reasons why a particular product has been selected, as we outlined earlier in the episode. So the best thing to do is to make sure you get hold of a fully complete data sheet from the manufacturer and stick that in with your submission. And you want to say something to the effect of, we're pleased to put forward these alternative products for your use, but please confirm with your designer that these are fully suited to your particular needs on this project prior to placing an order with us. And the reason why I'm saying this is because certain contractors out there will expect you to be an expert in your field. And whilst you might well be, they and their designer are the bigger expert in their particular project. So you want to put the onus on them to make sure it's right and avoid any argument later of, I came to you because you're the expert and you've put this forward and it's your fault that it now doesn't work. And if you're being asked to tender on the basis of alternative products, what I think you're best doing is sticking with the compliant bid and then offering an approximate saving to go to an alternative. And then you can state, but you need to work with the contractor to iron out any details which are going to change in going to the alternative product so that you can fully determine the price. And by doing that, you're also getting the contractor to buy into and understand what the implications are of the spec change and then what they might need other contractors to do if there's any impact beyond the scope of your package. In doing that, you can have a very collaborative way to start your working relationship on a project which hopefully starts building some trust with your contractor right from the start and it also mitigates a risk for both of you for the contractor for them to fully understand what's involved with the value engineering and it de-risks your price at the same time okay well hopefully you've got some better tips from today's episode on how to put forward value engineering, what some of the pitfalls are, and what it's all about. So thanks for tuning into today's show. If you've enjoyed it and you found it useful and you think somebody else might find it useful too, I'd be really grateful if you'd share the podcast with them so I can get my message out and start helping more subcontractors. And again, if you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there, you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more, and it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. We're also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome. <laughs>